we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. Welcome to ParCast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal con artists episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the ParCast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular ParCast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find these original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. This episode covers Childhoods from Hell. Childhood is a crucial time in the development of a person's psyche. Time and time again, we've seen the role abuse, neglect, and traumatizing childhood circumstances have had in shaping so many of the killers we have covered. The clips today will dive into examples of adverse childhoods and the psychological effect it had on some of the worst criminals of the last century. Opinion is divided on whether someone is born a killer or whether they're molded into one by their environment. According to psychologists, both nature and nurture play a role. But studies have shown that a large percentage of serial killers suffered child abuse, whether it be sexual, physical, or emotional. FBI profiler Robert Ressler spent most of his career studying serial killers. In his book, Whoever Fights Monsters, he wrote that all the murderers he studied, every single one, were victims of serious emotional abuse as children. For further evidence, criminal researchers Heather Mitchell and Michael G. Omote found that 68% of the serial killers they studied had suffered some sort of abuse, whether it was physical, sexual, or psychological. Our clips today will highlight different types of abuse, neglect, and hardships criminals endured during childhood, and how these traumatizing events shape their criminal behavior as an adult. Our first clip comes from ParCast original Female Criminals. In this episode, we take a look at one of the most notorious female serial killers, Juana Barraza, aka La Mata Viajitas. 
Barraza robbed and killed over 40 elderly women in Mexico City between 1998 and 2006. But before she was known as the old lady killer, she was a young girl growing up in rural Hidalgo, Mexico. Starting at age five, Barraza experienced physical abuse at the hands of her mother. It would only get worse. In looking at Juana Barraza's early years, we'll see the beginnings of a pattern of instability and abuse that continued throughout her childhood. One psychologist, Dr. Feggy Ostrowski at UNAM in Mexico, analyzed Juana Barraza specifically. It was part of a study of more than 370 violent inmates at state and federal prisons to find out if violent criminals had violent family lives or if they had witnessed rape or violent behavior as children. That description definitely applies to Juana Barraza. When Juana was five, her young mother left one daughter, Angela, behind with her dad and took Juana to live with her own mother and stepfather, a man named Refugio Samperio. Juana's mother then began dating Samperio, who, to be clear, was her own mother's boyfriend. Juana was forced to take care of the housework and stay inside the house much of the time. That meant she couldn't go to school, couldn't learn to read or write, and she was abused. Her mother hit her and yelled at her. This was happening at a time when her brain was still developing. It's what Dr. Ostrowski calls the second critical stage of development, which happens between six and nine years old. This is normally the time when kids learn to read, but in cases of those who are later prone to violence, the area of the brain called the angular gyrus is not as developed as in normal children of that age. We know Juana didn't learn to read, and she wasn't exposed to much outside her home situation. And her home life was deteriorating. Juana's mother was a severe alcoholic, willing to do almost anything to get her next fix. That included trading away her own daughter to an older man named Jose Lujo in exchange for three beers. Yes, you heard that right. Three beers in exchange for Juana, who was just 13 years old. Jose Lujo raped Juana, who got pregnant at 13 but then lost the pregnancy. Lujo continued to abuse and rape her for four more years, sometimes tying her to a bed frame. That stayed with her. Juana never forgave or made peace with her mother for neglecting her and foisting her on the man who repeatedly raped her. It shaped the way she'd feel about older female figures who are normally seen as protectors. In 1973, when Juana was 16 years old, Jose Lujo raped and impregnated her again. This time Juana had a son, Jose Enrique Lujo Barraza. But she had no money and no job. Her mother was an unreliable alcoholic. Her father was miles away, and she hadn't seen him for a decade. The closest thing she had to a stable influence in her life was her stepfather. Remember, this is the man who originally dated Juana's grandmother before he started sleeping with Juana's mother. Juana had nowhere to go, so she stayed with her abuser, Jose. In that clip from Female Criminals, 
Wanda Barraza spent the majority of her most crucial development years contending with violence and abuse. Research has suggested that Barraza chose elderly female victims because of the rage and resentment she felt toward her mother, who failed to protect her from such abuse, instead selling her to a man who raped and assaulted her for years. Juana isn't the only person who grew into a killer after she was essentially abandoned as a child. Our next clip highlights another criminal whose mother chose alcohol over parental responsibilities. In Parcast Original Cults, we examine the childhood of Charles Manson, who grew up to be the manipulative leader of the murderous Manson family. Manson's mother, Kathleen Maddox, was only 16 years old when she gave birth. Like Barraza's mother, Maddox was an alcoholic and had little interest in caring for her baby. Manson was also abandoned, first by his biological father and then by his stepfather. On November 12, 1934, Kathleen gave birth to a boy whom she named Charles Mills Manson. Charles after her father and Manson after her new husband. Kathleen was still a teenager at heart. The 16-year-old didn't want to spend much time being a mother. She began leaving Charles with relatives so she could go out and party. Sometimes Kathleen would disappear for days with her brother Luther. Nancy began to worry that her two children were working together to rob people. Sadly for Nancy, her fears would soon be proven right. William Manson quickly grew sick of Kathleen's disappearances and divorced her in 1937. Kathleen couldn't care less. She was busy taking Charles Manson's biological father, Colonel Scott, to court to force him to pay child support. But $25 was all she'd ever get from Manson's biological father. Colonel Scott wanted nothing to do with his son. Did Charles grow up to resent his biological father for abandoning him? It's hard to say for sure, but an unsolved murder that took place in 1969 has some people theorizing that maybe Charles did hold a grudge against his father. In May of 1969, mere months before the Tate-LaBianca killings, Ashland detectives found a man viciously stabbed to death in his home, a kitchen knife left sticking out of his body. The man's identity? Darwin Scott, Colonel Scott's brother and Charles Manson's uncle. Given that the Tate murders were in part a result of Manson's feelings of resentment and desire for revenge, it's easy to suspect that Manson might resent the father who never cared about him and who made no effort to save Manson from an unhappy childhood. But before Manson became a vengeful cult leader, he was a deeply troubled child. In August of 1939, when Charles was four years old, his mother Kathleen and his uncle Luther teamed up to rob a man named Frank Martin. After a night of drinking, Kathleen and Luther lured Martin to a gas station, then assaulted and robbed him. They did a terrible job of hiding their identities, and police quickly arrested them. Charles may have watched as police arrested and took his mother away. In that clip from our Cults episode on the Manson family, Charles Manson's teenage mother abandoned him for a life of partying and crime. Following her arrest, Manson began showing signs of the calculating killer he would later become. While still in school, he manipulated classmates into attacking each other, foreshadowing the dark role he would play as the head of the Manson family. Charles Manson grew from troubled child 
a criminal adult. As a result, he spent nearly half of his life behind bars. Incarceration gave him a primer in how to manipulate, pimp, and control those around him. He used those lessons to recruit his young family, leading them on the bloody path to Helter Skelter. Coming up, we'll see how growing up in a violent, war-torn country created serial killer Andre Chikatilo. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the show. So far, we've heard about serial killers whose parents were their primary abusers or whose neglect led them to criminal activity. But in our final clip from Parcast Original Serial Killers, we examine Andre Chikatilo, who grew up in Ukraine during the 1930s and 40s, when the country was in the grips of Joseph Stalin's collectivization of agriculture. This forced integration of individual farms into state-controlled property led to poverty, famine, and widespread violence. Not only was Chikatilo a victim of his mother's physical abuse and his schoolmates' bullying, he grew up witnessing violence and constant death happening in the world around him. This was the world Andre Chikatilo was born into, circa 1936. His family managed a meager living on the communist collective farms, but stories of starvation and worse were common. In fact, Chikatilo later recalled a warning his mother gave him. I was from Ukraine. Soviets organized hunger during those years. 20 million people dead. My older brother, Stepan, was caught by cannibals and eaten during the mass starvation. My mom always told me, don't get out of our yard. Stepan was eaten and they will eat you too. While it's known that cannibalism took place across Ukraine, it's impossible to confirm if Andre really had a cannibalized brother. It could have been a boogeyman story to keep him from leaving the yard. But a five-year-old doesn't forget details like that. In fact, five decades later, Chikatilo would recall his mother's words to prosecutors, still convinced his brother had been eaten. Then came the war. 1941 would bring Hitler and his German troops into Ukraine, dragging Andre's father into the army. Here appears a story that, if true, would explain much of Chikatilo's later behavior. In 1943, Andre's mother gave birth to a girl, Tatiana, while his father was locked in a German POW camp. In these years, rape by German soldiers was common for Ukrainian women, and some historians suggest that Tatiana could have been the product of such an assault. Since their house only had one room, is it possible that six-year-old Andre witnessed his mother's rape? Possible, but the evidence is slim. When it comes to serial killers, people search for these clear-cut traumas that tell us what went wrong. It's harder to understand the impact of a childhood where rape and murder was merely the backdrop, part of everyday life. For developing brains, it normalizes the idea of violence and death. Consider how Andre felt walking to school and frequently seeing body parts on the side of the road. And school was bad enough as it was. 
Though Chikatilo was bright, he had crippling shyness. He was paranoid of his chronic bedwetting and believed his classmates made fun of him. The bedwetting was a problem at home, since Andre, Tatiana, and their mother shared a single mattress. His embarrassment and his mother's punishments caused more stress, leading to more bedwetting. As he grew into a teenager, all this stress made Andre incredibly antisocial, especially with girls. He simply could not interact with women. In some instances, he could barely say his own name when talking with them. Teenage awkwardness or something else? Mm, oh, there's something deeper there. Author Peter Conradi suggests that growing up in wartime had two effects on Chikatilo. One, obviously, was his proximity to death and blood. But the other was his concept of masculinity. Chikatilo absorbed stories of Red Army soldiers like comic books, imagining himself in dramatic battles or interrogating German soldiers. And those interrogations tended to be pretty brutal, right? In Andre's mind, absolutely. But the key here is Andre's love of fantasy. His visions of these war heroes didn't match his reality. His father was a disgraced POW. His mother would punish and belittle him. Even at a prepubescent age, Chikatilo had severe emasculation issues. He didn't see himself as a man. How could he expect women to respect him, let alone like him? So he preferred his dream world. He'd masturbate frequently, shun the other kids, and stress deeply over what his classmates thought of him. Throughout his childhood, Andre obsessed over his inadequacy. In that clip from our episodes on Andre Chikatilo for Serial Killers, Chikatilo grew up in the shadow of war, genocide, rape, and cannibalism, while also contending with his mother's harsh punishments for bedwetting. Adding to Chikatilo's feelings of inadequacy was his discovery that he was impotent. When he was a teenager, he attempted to rape an 11-year-old girl, but was unable to. Research suggests this incident may have been the catalyst for his future erotophonophilia, which is defined as sexual arousal derived from killing. Chikatilo went on to be known as the Rostov Ripper and sexually assaulted, mutilated, and murdered over 40 children and women in the 1980s. During his trial, Chikatilo cited his deprived childhood and sexual humiliation as a teen as the reason for his brutal crimes. While the roles of nature and nurture in the outcome of a child's upbringing remains hotly debated, it's clear from these clips that a troubled childhood has a significant part to play in creating a future killer. Enduring abuse, neglect, and abandonment during crucial years of development all had a lasting impact on these criminals. In Serial Killers, Andre Chikatilo's feelings of emasculation and the childhood he experienced in war-torn Ukraine contributed to his brutal crimes against women and children. In cults, Charles Manson's desire to control others and inflict widespread terror came out of a childhood in which his parents abandoned him. And in Female Criminals, Juana Barraza killed elderly women who reminded her of her neglectful mother, who sold her to a man who sexually abused her for years. Every terrifying criminal was once a helpless child. Chances are their childhood set them up for a future of harm inflicted upon other helpless victims.
Thanks for tuning into Parcast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on Childhoods from Hell. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode on unhealthy relationships and how they manifest in criminal activity. If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast original shows, Serial Killers, Female Criminals, and Cults on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time.